In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to feature an interview with Bishop Joseph Strickland and author Rod Bennett. Rod is the author of a new book called These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes, and he talks about the role of the apostles in the early church. So please enjoy this conversation with Rod Bennett and Bishop Joseph Strickland. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome, Rod. Um, So what inspired you to write this book on the Twelve Apostles? Well, you know, I really appreciate you having me on the program. I I really enjoy discussing this topic, and uh, I... I was inspired, as I meant, as I tell it in the introduction to the book, I was inspired to write on the topic while, really, while I was still an evangelical Christian. I was a, a, a Southern Baptist and then followed a bit of a path through other Protestant forms of Christianity for some years before I became Catholic. But one of the major factors in that journey was that early on in my walk as an evangelical Christian, I began to ask questions about what special role our Lord had for the 12 apostles. I recall asking a uh, young Baptist seminarian friend of mine uh, the question, what what role were the apostles meant to serve in God's economy of salvation? What was their special role? And I was told in a kind of a surprisingly preemptorily way uh, that they were nothing special, that uh, God's, they were simply the first Christians, the first ones to hear the message. Uh, Jesus used some of them to write some of the New Testament, but other than that, uh, they were just simply the first generation and had no recurring role above and beyond what any uh, believing Christian had. And even at the time, I thought there was something a little fishy about that. I, uh, It's true that I'd been exposed to a few uh, high church type sources, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and a few other writers like that. And they they talked about the apostolic nature of the church in a different way than that. But just from my own intuitions, I've been able to deduce the idea that uh, there was something ongoing and continuing about the job that Jesus gave to them. Uh, after all, one of the very first things, if not the first thing, that the apostles do when they assemble after our Lord's ascension is to go into a bit of a panic mode. That's too strong a term, but they notice that there's just 11 now. And their reaction seems to be, well, wait a minute, there's only 11. There can't be 11. There were 12. The, mm-hmm. the, the, that term, the 12, has a very special significance in the Gospels. And so they immediately set to work to find a replacement for the, a, the failed apostle, Judas Iscariot, and uh, to find his replacement, to find a, a bench player, so to speak, to call up to the uh, to pinch hit for Judas. So uh, uh, it, it's striking how big a, how much time and space it takes up in the very early chapters of the book of Acts, because 
they, uh, you know, they even quote an Old Testament prophecy on the topic. Mm-hmm. They say, uh, uh, let, let, uh, let his bishopric another take, implying that the Old Testament had prophesied that uh, the, the role of an apostle would need to be uh, filled up again if, uh, uh, if one of the 12 should fail. So that was a striking story to me, even long before I ever thought about uh, considering the claims of the Catholic faith, uh, that definitely seemed to imply a continuing role for those 12 apostles. And then, of course, later on, we could go into this more later, but later on in the gospel, uh, well, in the book of Revelation, for example, uh, the apostle John, when he sees his great vision of the new Jerusalem, the the city of God in heaven, he uh, he sees that the foundations of the city are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles, yeah. which certainly implies that they had some role that continued to the end and that it continues even after the end in the world to come. So all of that was a, a, a striking thing to ponder for an even young evangelical like myself, curious about things like this. Yeah. And uh, I, some of the earliest notes I have for this book, Beast 12, really date from the early 80s when all of this was happening. So, and that's still, you know, 12 years or so before my conversion to Catholicism. So it shows that it, it goes back a long way. The, uh, the interest goes back a long way. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting that you, you point out that uh, very early, really, you could almost say the first thing they did um, was to replace the, the missing member and to round out the 12 again. And uh, an interesting take on the response that you received, they started out as very ordinary, um, and they were not not what anyone would expect that the Lord would have chosen. And I think that tells us a lot as well, that they started off as men with coming from different backgrounds, no tremendous training, uh, if you could be trained for what they ultimately were able to do. Um, but I think that highlights that the Lord did choose 12 ordinary men. One of them, of course, became the betrayer, so they had to immediately get into what we would call apostolic succession. Um, but all of them, uh, Peter is is a great character and probably gets the most, if you think of the the Gospels as a drama, he's on stage probably more than any of the other apostles. But he was very flawed, very ordinary. And, and as we both know, in the Scriptures, so often, uh, Old and New Testament, the Lord chooses the weak, the meaningless, the, the neglected, the marginalized, and brings them to uh, a role of... Um, of significance in his kingdom, as you were indicating, as your book indicates, the importance of that number, the 12 and the chosen ones that the Lord uh, established. It, it is very interesting that we know um, so little about them. And as my thought is that it really emphasizes from the earliest days of the church that the church is the bride of Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's about proclaiming his message. And in a sense, here I am as a 21st century successor of the apostles in the tradition of the Catholic Church. And 
my significance still is not important. Uh, what's important is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the men chosen through the ages to continue that apostolic work, as we all are called to from our baptism and confirmation. Yes, that's that's uh, that's it. It uh, for the twelve, it was all about the Lord. So, and everything they did was to point uh, to point in His direction. When uh, when Peter and John are offered worship in the Book of Acts by uh, people in the streets who have seen uh, their the miraculous power that the Lord has given them, it, they're very careful to beg off uh, personal adoration uh, of themselves as mere men and to uh, direct the attention of the crowds to the source, the actual source of the power. So that's something we always need to think, think in my, about and have in mind when you write a book about, uh, about the apostles. One mm -hmm. of the things, though, that's been very striking in the writing of this book is that uh, the early fathers, which writing about the early fathers is kind of my speciality, I guess. I wrote a book called Four Witnesses some years ago that became yeah, that's a popular. great book. Um, Thank you. For I, saying I appreciated so. it. Thank you for saying so. The uh, uh, because of that, I get called on to write about the fathers. So uh, and so in preparing this book, I did a lot of reading in the subject of what they thought about the apostles and their attitudes toward them. And it's very interesting. They 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 make the same points that uh, uh, that you've been making that that the apostles were ordinary men. They weren't angelic beings or, or uh, you know, even great scholars or saints or any, well, obviously great saints eventually, but great, uh, uh, there was nothing about them that was an obvious choice to be a leader of uh, Christ's church on earth. But then again, our Lord himself was uh, a humble uh, man. And in his uh, human side, we even say an ordinary man. And he came from humble straits also, not uh, wealth or uh, privilege. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there was a course of preparation. Uh, Jesus himself tells us that the, uh, that the John the Baptist is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He, tell, he says that there's never been any prophet arisen greater than John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. And the scriptures tell us that in case of at least four of the 12 apostles, they had previously been disciples of John before they became disciples of Christ. In fact, John, at an important point in their training, turns them over to Jesus and says, he must increase and I must decrease. They yes. graduate, so to speak. Yes. And it's good. there's good evidence, uh, no time to go into it now, but good evidence that the many, so, at least some of the other apostles also had been disciples of John, the greatest Old Testament prophet, before they became disciples of the the son of man himself. So that's pretty good uh, credentials. They, <laughs> they had a good, uh, a, a good middle school teacher, and then they graduated to uh, uh, the Lord himself. So, and the fathers do emphasize this kind of thing. They, they, even though they recognize what, what you've said about the humble origins and the rest, they uh, are very prone to speak of the apostles in ways that many of us have forgotten. Now they talk about their, uh, there, at one point, Clement of Rome says that they had complete foreknowledge of what God's plan was. Uh, the other, uh, uh, the other, uh, many of the other fathers exalt their uh, holiness and their, uh, you know, sometimes in 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 sloppy homilies and things of that type, you'll hear them almost made the butt of a, butt of a joke. Mm 
you know. Many, yeah. many people go out of their way to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, make almost get a laugh from the congregation at Peter's expense or at, you know. So, uh, and that's very different than the way that the apostles talk about them with a reverence that's only slightly less than that that they afford to our Lord himself. And it's, it is because of the, the, their status as having been chosen, but also the fact that uh, they were his disciples and that they acquired his doctrine and they were his chosen conduit to, so that that doctrine should reach us for our salvation. Yeah, and Rod, what comes to mind as you're talking is, is the, the proximity to the Lord of the universe incarnate among us. They spent time with Jesus. And I think that says something to all of us as Christians today. Um, we need to spend time with the Lord as well. And certainly, <clears throat> we don't have the opportunity like the apostles did to, to just spend daily life with him. But we do need to, through word and sacrament, we need to be as in touch with the Lord as we possibly can and recognize that's the wonder of the lives of the apostles is that they are so closely associated. They knew Jesus of Nazareth. They knew him as Lord and Savior even before uh, he went into his passion and all of that drama unfolded. Um, I love to, to recognize that the, the Gospels were written uh, as sort of looking back at all of these events and understanding them through the light of the resurrection. So we uh, modern-day Christians and disciples, I think we have to do the same thing. We have to look at history and at our own time through the light of the resurrection and to see uh, the, the power of Jesus Christ calling us from sin and calling us to embrace the wonder of the life that he offers us. And as you're saying, the some of the beautiful writings of the church fathers really, of course, some of them are, and they boast about it. Uh, I think you can use that word that they're very proud of their connection to the apostles. Some of them uh, very closely connected. And even as that connection may be through generations of other church fathers, they are very, um, very clear about being connected to the apostles. And that is because they were thus connected to the Lord. And it's that, um, as I think you were, use the word conduits, that's w what the Lord chose them to be, to, to send his message out into the world and to sort of be, you know, in, in modern terms, those uh, broadcast towers covering the earth with the, the good news of Jesus Christ as that great commissioning from Matthew's gospel. Rod, one question that I would have as you research for this book, and I know the research I'm sure is just ongoing and continuing, I can imagine that it was hard to, to whittle it down into something that you could, you know, have in a, a reasonably sized book to, to talk about uh, the, the apostles and, and everything that developed from their work in the Holy Spirit. What would you say, or maybe there are multiple things, but 
Is there anything that comes to mind as something that was very uh, moving or startling or surprising that you learned of the apostles as a group or about one of the apostles as you, as you did some of this research? Well, well, the best thing and the thing that I tried to emphasize, I think the, the key insight, if I can say that I had one, was that if you look at the story through the eyes of the apostles, pretending that you don't know it already, that you don't know how it's going to go and you don't know where it's going to wind up or where it's going to end, uh, you see it differently. If you allow yourself to be a pupil imaginatively, encountering him for the first time in the way that they did, and the steps that they followed as they uh, discovered him for the first time. Uh, you begin to get a sense of uh, the challenge that they faced. You lose some of the 2020 hindsight that often makes them seem like uh, they're a little slow on the uptake or almost blockheads at times. Again, I've, sometimes people laugh if they ask questions that seem so elementary to uh, to we who've been catechized and uh, spent all the, you know centuries learning all this from the cradle, uh, we forget what it's like to see this and discover it for the first time. They were steeped, we believe, in Old Testament prophecy. That's really what John did: was to prepare the way of the Lord, as his uh, job was. Uh, his designated assignment was to prepare the way of the Lord and to make his path straight. And one of the ways that he did that was to disciple his own disciples in the uh, art of recognizing Messiah when he came, which in a nutshell was the, what the whole nation of Israel was supposed to be doing. But uh, uh, to see all of the Old Testament prophecies and to learn all of them by heart so that when the various claimants came along, you could distinguish good from bad or good fruit from bad fruit, true uh, uh, claimants that seemed to follow the Old Testament model and the ones who didn't. What was difficult about this and what, me what makes it not easy and why you did have to have men who had learned the Bible very well was because the, the uh, prophecies are not simple and easy uh, on the face of things. Sometimes in church at Christmas and at Advent, other times we learn a few of the ones that uh, are the most uh, obvious. The, the, his, his name will be the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us, all the other things. <laughs> but there are just as many, if not more, prophecies of a, uh, a new Moses or a new Joshua, a, a military messiah, a messiah who will come and... Uh, meet out punishment to the oppressor and bring freedom to the oppressed and to and some of them get pretty explicit about the bashing of heads and the spattering of blood a conquering messiah who's coming to uh to uh pour out judgment on the ungodly and those things are just as much a part of the old testament record as the ones that seem uh more obvious to christians today and so as the 12 apostles, you, you, were, you had to know what sort of Messiah you were looking at, you, what, what sort of Messiah to expect, and they didn't always know. This explains a lot of, of what, the, when they get sort of caught with their pants down many times, asking about who's going to be at your right hand in the kingdom to come. They're thinking about war. They're thinking about, uh, uh, 
they're thinking about who's going to be your your executive officer, who's going to be the second in command, what's the chain of command going to be like, and the rest. Because mm -hmm. after all, Jesus sits on the throne of his father David, and David was a man of war. David was a military deliverer, a military savior, so to speak. And uh, so everybody knows that David is a very uh, clear picture in many ways, a, a, a prefiguring, a type of Christ. But in other ways, he doesn't seem much like Christ. In fact, when, when David asked to build a temple for, uh, for Yahweh, uh, God turns him down, says, you've got too much blood on your hands. Yeah. He says, I, uh, I, I want uh, a man of peace to do that because I want to uh, signal my intentions for the temple, that it should be a, a, a place of prayer for all people. So all of these things, are, the, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament are difficult. They seem contradictory at times. And so if you approach the life of Christ as the apostles did, men steeped in Jewish history and in the Old Testament prophecies, they have to learn how to see how not to be confused by this man who seems at times to be very much like what they expected at other times, not much at all like what they expected and to live through it. The only way to get the full answer to the questions was to live through it all. And, uh, and I think in the book, I, I sort of tease the answers to most of the questions until right at the end too. So to give you a sense of what, uh, what it was like to, be appraising Jesus from through the eyes of the apostles. So that, that, that's one aspect of the story that, uh, I think is new in this book. Yeah. Um, would you maybe, uh, I can ask this way. Would you point to one of the apostles as especially intriguing, or, or you might say a favorite for, for Rod, <laughs> um, just is there one that kind of really captures your imagination more than others? Yes. From the first time that I uh, conceived writing this book, which again was years ago, the 80s, uh, I always knew who the everyman figure was, who the audience identification character was going to be, and that was Nathaniel. Nathaniel really? is sometimes called Bar Bartholomew and some of the other yeah, scriptures, but yeah. uh, uh we think that it's two names for the same person. Uh, yes. He's not very prominent in the New Testament. He has one or two moments, but those one or two moments are memorable. Uh, he uh, meets Christ before almost any of the others. There's only three or four other disciples who came earlier than he did. And the circumstances of their meeting, as I'm sure you remember, and as do many of our readers, uh, were spectacular in, in some way. Uh, Jesus approaches Nathaniel and talks about him as he as if he knows all about him. He says, ah, here's an Israelite indeed, a man in whom there's no guile, no yeah, trickery. Yes. You're the sort of man I'm after. And Nathaniel responds like, I don't know you from Adam. How is it that you uh, claim to know my character? And I mean, it's flattering what you've said, but how can I take it as anything but flattery since we've never met until just now? And Jesus responds by saying, oh, we've met when you were under the, under the, uh, under the, uh, goodness, my brain, fig tree, when fig you were tree, under yeah. the fig tree, yeah. when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, the gospel doesn't stop to explain this. We can deduce a few things from scripture and tradition 
There's an old tradition that Nathaniel was studying to be a scribe. Now, the scribes were the synagogue's version of uh, the synagogue's equivalent of a canon lawyer. So yeah. he was focused on uh, on learning law, of which there was an awful lot in the Old Testament dispensation. And uh, he was focused on law. But at the same time, uh, well, we also learned from the Talmud that many rabbis did their training under, in the shade of a fig tree. It was their secret spot where they went away to study and be away from the crowds and stuff. Really? And Jesus himself later on tells us, when you pray, do it in secret. Find a secret place. Don't let people see you. Go in, uh, 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 and do it secretly. So when... Now, is that what Nathaniel was doing under his fig tree? We don't know for sure, but we can deduce something from his reaction to having been told this. A minute ago, here's Jesus, a rank stranger, telling him all about his character. Now the same rank stranger says, oh, yeah, I, when I saw you under the fig tree, uh, I, I knew you. Mm. And, uh, uh, and Nathaniel's response is he falls down in his face, on his face and calls him the king of, king of Israel. The Messiah, the King of Israel. So <laughs> why just this little comment about the fig tree should do that has led many people to think there's something supernatural going on here. Nathaniel's secret place must have been a secret. And uh, there's a good reason to think that maybe he was praying for the Messiah to come. So yeah. uh, uh, so because he certainly has a dramatic response to that, uh, to our Lord saying there. So uh Many, many writers, including the early fathers, have seen this as a supernatural word of knowledge on Christ's part that convinced Nathaniel completely and blew away any, any of his squibbles or doubts. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. His confession seems hardly less full than that of Peter. Peter says, uh, calls him, uh, uh, you know, uh, calls him God in much the same way that Nathaniel does. Son of a and, living God, yeah. That's right. So, uh, and our Lord treats that response as if it's a call of special merit on Peter's part, and the fact that, as indeed it was, and that uh, uh, that it had been a supernatural revelation to him. Our Lord says to Peter, uh, "Flesh and blood hasn't taught you this. You didn't mm -hmm. learn this from some human teacher. You learned it directly from the Spirit." It's interesting that though that when you compare the two. Uh, Peter's confession doesn't seem any fuller than Nathaniel's at the very beginning of the story. So uh, that's one of the puzzles that I go into a little bit in the book uh, that I, I think is very intriguing. I, I, I suppose I'll have to leave it as a teaser right now because we don't have time to go into everything that's in here. But, uh, yeah. but that's a long answer to your question. I thought people needed somebody to, uh, to walk through the story with. And Nathaniel is always the device I had in mind that you would, we would see it from his point of view. Well, that's interesting because Nathaniel is, is, I'd have to say, a personal favorite of mine for, uh. for various reasons. And that um, I, I love what you say about the, the fig tree and some of that imagery and the, the rabbis uh, or scribes um, going to study under the fig tree. And obviously, I mean, from Nathaniel or Bartholomew's reaction, it's almost like a code for, I've been watching you, young man. You know, I mean, it's right. like I've seen you to say he's seen you under the fig tree. And it it kind of evokes for me, I mean, it's very simple, but 
it almost says, I've been watching you for a length of time. It's not just one moment right. under a fig right. tree, but I've seen you in your studies, in a sense, in your formation, especially with Nathaniel's uh, reaction to that. And I've always been intrigued by, you know, that that little, as you're saying, uh, just a few words, really, as far as the four Gospels about Nathaniel, but very significant words and very deep in on both sides of what Christ says and what Nathaniel says. And I also love the what you've said about the um, being steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and the, the, the story of the people of Israel. That's something that um, the apostles clearly were and the early, early church clearly was, I think in ways that from our perspective, you almost have to mind some of that and understanding really the the people of Israel in the first century, where they were, what the expectation of the Messiah really was. All of that helps to to flesh that out for us 21st century uh, disciples to be able to to see the the worldview of those apostles, even as as they began, certainly, a fisherman or whatever. The I mean, like Matthew was uh, a tax collector, which was a very different profession from most of them. But whatever they were doing, um, they evidently were men, which was not totally unusual for the faithful Jew to be very well versed. If they had studied anything from my limited studies, my understanding is if they had studied anything, they knew Scripture. They knew uh, their Bible, the, the Word of God, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew the stories of the prophets, and they knew the story of the people of Israel. And I think with that backdrop, which we have to sort of re-enter that, um, because as you said, we know the end of the story with Jesus, and it sometimes can can make it harder for us to to really get to the roots of where the apostles were as they became apostles, and where their formation, their I guess you could use the word their catechesis um, in the Hebrew story and the story of the people of Israel, and and who the Messiah was going to be for them, all of that was something that was very much in their formation as they encountered Jesus and began, I mean, like you indicate with Nathaniel, pretty much he's knocked to his knees, literally, knowing who this is from his initial encounter. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely it. Uh you know, I think it was St. Augustine who said that the uh, New Testament was concealed in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Yeah. Uh, that link between the two is so essential, and it's in danger of being lost these days because yeah. the Old Testament is difficult to understand. It's difficult to teach, and as a result, uh, a lot of people who approach catechesis or approach uh, Bible teaching or whatever, choose easier, simpler subjects. But uh, uh, it's never, the, ch the church has always said the two are indispensable. They're linked, they're joined at the hip, 
that you don't understand the one unless you understand the other. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, and, and it's uh, something that, that uh, you definitely see when you look at how the church fathers approach a topic like the uh, call of the 12 apostles. Well, I, I really appreciate um, your helping us to understand and to, to get to know better, you could say, the, the 12 apostles and to recognize how sig- significant they are for understanding the early church and understanding uh, how they knew Jesus and how they understood him to, to truly be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, those those different, very significant moments in the Gospels where they make those professions of faith. Um, like I think of, of Thomas, you know, often called the doubter, uh, but he gives us that beautiful um, phrase or, or teaching that Jesus offers, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And that's really all of us in the, from the, the second century on. Um, so the apostles really are those figures that help us to, to live this apostolic faith. And I, I appreciate your helping, um, like so many other great writers to, to know them as real people, real individuals to flesh out a bit more, uh, who they were and always helping us. I mean, with the goal of knowing Christ more intimately as they did to know those he associated closely with. It's kind of like even in our own lives. You can look at um, Rod's friends or Joe's friends, and you know something more about each of us by the company that we keep. And so the apostles are significant for the church of the 21st century to really come to know them as living, breathing uh, men, people of this world, but called to build a kingdom that is beyond this world. So we're on the same mission. So we definitely need to know those those original builders of of the kingdom that is all about following Christ. So I really appreciate your work. Um, I hope you will continue. I'm glad you mentioned the the book, the the Four Witnesses, because I've not I've talked to many people who really their faith was nurtured by and i could say the same by your very readable presentation of those early church fathers and and they they're so significant and so many people have come to deeper faith by knowing the writings of those originals who many of them had very close connections to the apostles and uh that helps us to to recognize how important it is for us to be closely connected to the apostles as well. So, Rod, thank you. Um, as always, we can close with a, a blessing. Is there any final comment or encouragement that you would like to offer to listeners? Well, I would encourage you to, this sounds like a commercial for the book, but uh, <laughs> if you want to hear uh, more of this sort of thing, These 12 from Catholic Answers is a great book for that purpose, if I do say so myself. But however you get it, I would say get some more knowledge of the 12 apostles. Uh, just go to the Gospels yourselves if, you, uh, if you'd like and read the story as if you were hearing it for the first time as they are in the pages of the Gospel. And that, I think, will give you uh, 
a blessing because the apostles uh, live on in our hearts when we read their words and the accounts of their actions on behalf of the gospel in the scriptures. And our Lord himself uh, uh, is there with us, helping us, and the Holy Spirit is at our elbow interpreting the readings as we read. So you will be blessed by a closer acquaintance with the uh, apostles and where, no matter where you get it from. And uh, I uh, appreciate the uh, chance to, uh, to make a little contribution myself in making, piquing people's interest in this very important subject. Well, thanks again, Rod, and let us pray a blessing for everyone who will listen to this podcast. Almighty God, we thank you for the goodness and the talents of Rod Bennett as he offers this wonderful book, These Twelve. We pray that many lives may be touched by the wonder of those original followers of your Son, and help us all as we come to know them better to seek, of course, to know your Son more deeply and to know that he is with us, even as he is seated at your right hand in glory. May all the twelve, may the Immaculate Virgin Mary and all the saints intercede for us. And we ask this blessing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>